Psalm 12, verses 5 and 6. Because of the oppression of the weak and the groaning of the needy, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. So there's this phrase that's been used over the years by theologians, and it says, God is on the side of the poor. God's on the side of the poor, the marginalized. And you can really make the case for that if you read the Old Testament, you know, this quartet of the vulnerable, as it's called. Um, and then, of course, Jesus, you know, says this amazing line in the Sermon on the Mount, which you point out in the book, blessed are the poor in one of the Gospels, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor people are blessed in the eyes of God. Wow, God's on the side of the poor. And I think for most of my life, when I thought about that, when I heard that, I thought, okay, if God's on the side of the poor, then I ought to go help the poor as well. I ought to show up in the soup kitchens and be charitable and um, seek people in the margins and all that. And that's true. But as I'm getting older, this is going to sound a little radical when I first say it. Uh, but now, but as, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing if God's on the side of the poor, then how can I become poor? Right? It sounds a little weird to hear myself say that, but uh, what I don't necessarily mean by that, the way it sounds, what I mean is how do I find that place in me, that place of lack, that place of need, that place of poverty, whether it's spiritual or financial, whether it's relational or material, what's the lack that I need? Okay. That's what he wants to come and fill. That's what it means that he's on the side of the poor. He's come to fill us, that fill that God-shaped hole that we talked about a couple of days ago. And, and as it says, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, I'm blessed when I realize that my spirit, my soul is poor without him. Right? There's a blessing in that because it means I can stop going my own way. I can stop trying to figure it all out myself and I can start depending on my savior. That's the blessing. So I'm going to actually not respond to exactly what you said, mm -hmm. but I, I think it's important uh, that I, I pass this information on because I think in one of our recordings, I talk about uh, truth, beauty, goodness, and mystery. And I'm going to focus on mystery a bit here, but it incorporates these other qualities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Death Valley Junction is on the uh, on the border of Nevada and Death Valley itself. Uh, it's above uh, Death Valley um, by about a thousand feet, but it's a town. It was a borax mining town at one time. But in the 1960s, uh, a woman, a dancer, a New York dancer named Marta Beckett, uh, was driving through with her husband, and she saw that this little uh, abandoned town had a theater in it. It was a ruin, but it was a theater. And she decided to stay there. And I became, I came to know her through a book she did. And I was involved in the book. And I even um, named the book. It was called To Dance on Sands, which is taken from Shakespeare. But I also witnessed her as an artist. Uh, she was a true dancer, but she also was a painter. And because she thought nobody was going to come to this place, uh, to see her dance, she painted uh, the audience on the walls of the theater. And hmm. it, it's just, it's beautiful. It's Shakespearean. Hmm. It's like the globe. 
and all kinds of people are looking on, uh, painted people are looking on. And I found her sort of a, a, a marvel of the American spirit and, and somebody who probably was in a semi-failed life who decided that truth, beauty, goodness, and mystery were all going to be embodied uh, with her dancing in Death Valley Junction. And you'll see today's picture is taken of the theater through um, some decaying uh, building walls, which is an old gas station there. I, I was back there in 2021, uh, and uh, she had passed away by then. Uh, she was in her 90s, but she kept on dancing to the bitter end. And I guess I bring this up because mm -hmm. uh, I think the human spirit is available. The, the spirit that she had is actually built into all of us. We just have to ignite it, uh, and in and it, it takes so many different versions. It's it's a huge kind of spectrum of how we relate to the the truth of the gospels, the truth of the Bible, the truth of um, you know Jesus Christ, on and on. Uh, and she may not have been a Christian. I don't know. I I never got that far with her, but she. Uh, revealed something that as Christians we should always keep in our own minds is that, you know, her building a theater in this, this outback place that nobody was coming to hmm. is an act of, uh, of human goodness that um, when you see it, you just marvel at it. And I marvel, I, I felt blessed by knowing her uh, hmm. the way I did. So I'll, um, I'll, I'll give the line from Shakespeare as the last thing I'll say. Mm -hmm. Orpheus's lute was strung with poet sinews whose golden touch could soften steel and stone, make tigers tame, and huge leviathans forsake unsounded deeps to dance on sands.